I'll be reading verses 1 through 14. We again are following the Apostle Paul as he points us back to the Old Testament and reminds us of what we need to do in the New. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. And they were drinking from a rock, a spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Well, these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Please be seated. I'm reading a fascinating, listening to a fascinating book about a, a raid that was uh, carried out in World War II, and the British paratroopers, para, they uh, were dropped in on a cliff uh, in Normandy, and they actually stole a radar unit, an advanced radar unit, from the German army and took it back to Britain. It, was, it happened in 1941 and really was pivotal in the, in, in the British enhancing their understanding of radar and then actually uh, enabling them to, in, in many ways, to have enough, the proper kind of radar to, to help win the war. Now, before that, though, this book opens with the first ever paratroop operation that was accomplished by the British, dropping about 36 men 600 miles uh, into Italy, blowing up an aqueduct there. And fascinating thing about that particular raid was that it was fully successful. They actually blew the aqueduct up, but because of some bad intelligence, as, the, as they were coming back out to be extracted by a submarine, they called off the submarine rescue because they thought that the operation had been compromised and that they'd all been captured. So they come out to find the submarine gone, and they were, in fact, all captured, had to endure spending four years in POW camp, some of them being executed uh, before they finally were set free. And the true story of this came out, that it had actually been a successful mission. Now, what fascinated me about the training for this kind of mission was not so much the special preparation needed to, to learn how to you know, fire your weapons properly, to blow the bridge up, to, to steal the radar, some of the specialized training, but really that regardless, the, both missions were very different, but regardless of that, what went into those missions were months and months ahead of time of just pure physical preparation. That is endurance. You have to be able to carry the explosives to where they need to go. You have to be able to, to dismantle the radar unit and take it back down the cliffs. And if you don't have the proper endurance, it doesn't matter what you know. I mean, you can know everything. You can have all the intelligence, know exactly where you're supposed to go, have all the proper equipment. But if you don't have the stamina to get it there, you fail. And it reminded me much of what we're going to talk about this morning. Endurance is what is necessary to walk through trials. We can have lots of knowledge, lots of expertise, lots of training, if we don't have proper endurance, we will fail. Now, the beauty of the endurance that we have is that it isn't self-generated exclusively. If you're a paratrooper, you just got to lift the weights and run the mountains and hope that you got enough stamina. If you're a Christian, you have to put in the effort necessary to build endurance, but the strength for it, the underlying resources are equally provided to every person. Every believer has the same strength necessary to overcome temptation 
to walk through the path of escape, as we'll talk about this morning, and to make it through without becoming an idolater, because that's the reference point for our message. This verse about being able to endure in temptation is about being able to not succumb to idolatry. And we are surrounded with temptation towards idolatry of every kind. It's easy for us to get overwhelmed and to give in to these temptations while blaming the difficulty of the world in which we live. Like, it's just too difficult. You know, we've got Facebook and TikTok and uh, computers, and every time I turn around, I'm being assaulted by things for idolatry. And, well, it's just too hard, and I can't make it through. Well, it seems that the Corinthians were perhaps making some very similar excuses. We've got temple prostitutes. We, you know, we've got all these things, and we've got all these temptations towards idolatry. So h- how can we stand? Even if we do give in, then it must be just simply we didn't have any choice. And Paul's to tell them, no, God is faithful, and he will provide you. He has provided you the necessary resources so that you can turn away from these things. And that has never changed. Again, it isn't as though our modern-day society is more evil Yes, there are more opportunities in one sense to actually be connected, perhaps, to the evil of our society, but the same kind of endurance is necessary, and the same strength for endurance has been given, an infinite power that God provides for us. He will and does give us the necessary resources to walk through any and every temptation to idolatry that we could ever face, and this should be a joy for us. So what we'll see this morning is that as Christians, we are to carefully evaluate our spiritual condition and humbly take hold of God's provision to flee idolatry by enduring temptation through faithful obedience. As Christians, we are to carefully evaluate our spiritual condition and humbly take hold of God's provision to flee idolatry by enduring temptation through faithful obedience. We flee idolatry by enduring temptation. Now, in chapter 10, as we have been seeing, as we've been working our way through it, the Apostle Paul, in really finishing out his message or his exhortation to flee from idolatry, he's gone back to the Old Testament to say that there were problems, difficulties, and struggles back then. There was the temptation towards evil then, and Israel failed. Yet they should have fled idolatry by trusting in God. They had been baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They had been identified with God through a spiritual leader that God had raised up. God had chosen them from all the nations of the earth. He then protected them and guarded them through the personal ministry of Jesus Christ himself in the Old Testament. By implication then, Paul's even really, really challenging the Corinthians. You have the finished work of Christ. You are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Christ has come, he's been buried, he's risen again, he's ascended to the Father, He sent you the Spirit of God. You have everything that you need, and so you should pay attention to those examples that you have so that you might not fail as they did, having the great resources that God has given to you. So we're reminded that at any time and in any age, there are temptations towards evil cravings. And yet in every age and in every society, we are given the same strength with the same God who provides the same means of escape in every way. So we've seen already to beware of God's judgment. He says, look, here's all these blessings and benefits, and yet they did not take hold of the strength that God provided them, the resources God provided them to a sufficient degree, and so they failed. He was not pleased with most of them, even though they were his chosen people. He laid them low in the wilderness. And that in all of that, we are to comprehend God's purpose, to understand that those things were given for us as examples. Romans 15, 4, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, both negative and positive examples, that we would have endurance, that we would persevere through the difficulties that we face. 
So we're to comprehend God's purpose in everything that he does to teach us, to train us, to prepare us to accomplish his will. And that we're to avoid Israel's sin. That's what we've been discussing the last couple of weeks. The fact that they were idolaters, they were immoral, they tested God, they grumbled against God. And I don't know about you, but the kind of sermon that you, that you preach, you know, in not trying the Lord and in not grumbling, well, the Lord said, I'm glad you preached that wonderful sermon, now you get to live it this week. Of course, every week we have to live this, but it just seemed like there was three or four things that came somewhat uh, unexpectedly where I was, I was in the middle of grumbling saying, Lord, are you really good in bringing this? And my own sermon just comes crashing back down on my head. What are you doing? I'm the good God that you preached about on Sunday. I have not changed, and you need to continue to walk through this. Welcome to your own sermon, Chris Reiser. Lord is gracious to do those things. And I think even to the extent where, at times, having been a Christian for quite some time, I'm like, all right, I know you're sovereign. I trust you in that sense, and I know these things are from you, but I don't have to like it. So I'm just going to put my head down. I'm going to make it through this. That's, we're not Stoics here. I, got, I, was, I just was really, con, really convicted by that, walking through a situation. I'm going into work, and I'm just going to make it through this day, and you know, Lord, I know you're good. Well, again, we can wrestle and struggle, but I was not rejoicing, because it isn't just as Christians that we just, we just make it through. Endurance doesn't just mean we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, walk it through, and say, all right, I made it. As Stoics do that. Now we're to rejoice. James 1 is clear. We rejoice in our God in the midst of the difficulties, even through tears, because it didn't make the difficulties any easier, and yet there was to be rejoicing. So that's what we're called to do. We're not called to turn to, to, to indulge our evil desires and trying the Lord and grumbling in these things. We're supposed to turn that back around and rejoice and obey and delight in our Savior and what he's done. We're to heed God's instructions. Remember, he says again at the end after cataloging the sins, he goes, these things were written for you. Right? The end of the ages is upon you. Christ's work has, has come. And you're hearing these instructions and seeing these examples and you ought and must walk with God through these so that you don't sin. And now he's going to take a moment to call on them to evaluate themselves, right? You hear all this? I just told you these things. Don't fail in these ways. Here's Israel's example. Or where are, where are you, Corinthians? And the same is true for us. We're gonna evaluate our condition. That's the first blank on your outline. And it's, we drop our eyes down to verse 12. Therefore, so having seen these examples, having had these warnings, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Corinthians, watch out. You might see all these examples and go, ah, I'm good. I'm not like the Israelites. I'm not going to fail like that. I have knowledge. I have spiritual gifts. Yeah, the end of the ages have come upon us. The spiritual vitality that we have from the Spirit of God, right? we're able to live in this age conquering and you know, overcoming the difficulties that we face. We can go and sit in idol temples and everything will be fine for us. We have strength. We have giftedness. Take heed, Corinthians, says Paul. Those who think they stand, take heed lest you fall. And I would say that that is true for us as well. We need to be careful that we don't sit and evaluate these things and even look around us and say, right, see all these examples of other churches maybe, that is in general in the evangelical world and, and, and even Christians who are failing and falling, well, well, I'm not that. I mean, there's all you know, there's the evil people in the world and, and we've got, you know, the world's going crazy with, all, you know, their political machinations and, and the, the transgender issues and all, you know, the conspiracy, all the things that are going on. Well, I'm not that, I, I stand. Well, let's be careful. Be careful lest you fall, lest in, in portraying the evils of the world even and of the things that are going on and saying, well, I know about that and I know what's right and I know, I know who God is and I know what he's done. Be careful that you don't then give your heart over to idolatry. 
that you too could fall. Now, I think it's important to understand what Paul means by fall here, right? So that, and that will help us understand what he means by stand. The words in one sense are, are pretty general, particularly the word stand. That's just, that could be stand anywhere. Hold your ground, right? The word fall is used largely in Scripture about 50 times in the New Testament for not falling down, like physically, like things that fall down. People fall down, rocks fall down. When it's used spiritually, it really has two different connotations. One is the idea of falling that is not actually being a Christian, that is falling short of the righteousness of God and ultimately spending eternity in hell, thinking that you are a Christian and not. It's used that way in Hebrews 4. Really fascinating. The same example given of Israel and their, and their failing in the, in the desert, but the context is different. There, the author of Hebrews, I'm convinced, is calling out those in the congregation who have touched and felt and seen the goodness of God, but weren't really believers. He's saying, look, be, be careful that you thinking you stand might fall, and in that case, to fall away, not having been saved and then no longer being saved, but, but having seen and heard and touched all the things that God has done to ultimately fall in eternal destruction. So it can mean that, Hebrews 4.11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. The idea of Israelites entering the promised land are entering the rest that God has for us so that no one will fall through the same example of disobedience. But again, as as I've mentioned before, I don't think that's the context here that the word fall then is perhaps unbelievers in the congregation at Corinth that are, are, will be exposed to be true unbelievers by their sin. Again, that's, that could be the case as in certainly they were probably those in Corinth who weren't really believers. But as we've said, I think the context here is he's talking to believers who are in danger of falling short of or, or, or falling out of God's pleasure. That is, they are displeasing to God through their behavior, and so he brings his discipline upon them. And that's the way this word is used in Romans 4, or excuse me, Romans 14, where it's talking about believers who are seeking to honor God in their behavior. And and one, some are observing the Sabbath, some are not, but all of that is to please and honor the Lord. And Paul says, look, don't pass judgment on other believers, because before their own master, he says in Romans 14, 4, they will stand or fall. So he's not talking about falling away from the faith or falling eternally. He's saying, look, their master, God, will judge them when they stand before him. And either he'll say, I was pleased with that or I wasn't. It's not up to you to determine. You don't know. It's their master who evaluates their motives and their things. So you let them pursue what they say they're doing to please the Lord, and God will sort that out. Right? Again, back to our 1 Corinthians 3 example of those who were, who were see- seeking to serve in the church and were true believers who then all of their works just burned up. They, they fell in that sense. And I think that's the sense it's being used of here. Be careful that even as Christians, even as believers, and that's why I think this is so important to us, we can excuse this away, but well, that person wasn't really a believer, so that's why they weren't pleasing to the Lord. No, true believers can think they stand and be displeasing to God in their behavior. And it's almost as though the Corinthians were denying that. Hey, we, we stand so strong, so tall that we don't fail. And we can go sit in temples where they are worshiping idols. And because we know there are no, God, no other true gods, because we know that this food is okay to eat, we can't fall. And Paul's saying, no, no, you could. And in fact, you could fall so far, that is in, under my displeasure, that I would bring you home. Even as Paul is writing this letter, there are those who are sick. There are those who are sleep, those who sleep, have fallen asleep, have gone on to death because they've been displeasing to God. And I would say that's the primary sense in which fall is being used here. Take care, Christian. 
that you don't think that somehow because you are spiritually gifted, you have all of these blessings and benefits that you couldn't fall, that you couldn't walk into sin in some way that God would displease God and therefore he would bring his hand of discipline upon you. Now, now it is very true that it could be that a pattern of sin or patterns of sin in your life are not as a believer who is arrogant in their understanding and God takes them down a notch through discipline so that you return as a believer to honoring him. It could be that you are an unbeliever, that you are tasting and touching and, and, and seeing all the blessings and benefits through this church, and yet your pattern, your habits of unbelief in your heart do indicate a true falling short. That could be possible. And so you do need to be careful that you don't assume you're a Christian. But as Christians, you also need to be careful not to assume that there couldn't be a pattern of sin that develops in your life if you are not careful, if you do not take heed if you look at the examples of others and say, ah, oh, it would never be me. Or look at those evil sinners. Those people are doing that. Those Israelites can't believe it. <laughs> Who would do that? We're the Corinthians. We would never do that. And I've tried to encourage you that I don't think we're the Corinthians. Why? Because we have 2,000 years of the blessings and benefits of the church brought to us. We have the, the full written scriptures interpreted and, and, and carefully directed towards us through good Bible teaching. You were raised in Christian homes, most of you or many of you. You've had all the blessings and benefits of God's work on your behalf. And so thankfully, some of the sins that were endemic to Corinth aren't in our midst. And, I, and I've encouraged you with that, but I want to be careful and I don't, I, don't, I don't pump us up, as it were, or encourage us as a church, and that you wouldn't take heed. That thinking you stand, or thinking we stand, that we could think that we would not fall. We need to be careful. We need to carefully evaluate. Because we, we know a lot. And we've been given a lot. And we have a legacy of, of so many of us of, of spiritual blessing and benefit of those who have challenged us and directed us. But we need to be careful that we don't presume upon God. David Garland says, that presumed knowledge, that is those things the Corinthians thought that they knew or they did know, the knowledge they had. He talked about that in, in chapter 8. So you have, you have, you've got knowledge. In chapter 1, you know, you, you know all that you need to know, but that that knowledge had led them to risk idolatrous associations and to think nothing of it. They remained oblivious to the fact that it placed them, not to mention the person with a weak conscience, in dire spiritual jeopardy. Remember, Paul began in chapter 8 saying, look, it's not just you that is in danger here. It's the people that you would lead astray. That you might also lead them into idolatry and they would be destroyed. They would be harmed. They might even be taken home as a result of watching your example. David Garland goes on to say, they didn't sit down and coolly calculate the potential consequences of their idolatry and reach the theological conclusions that they were immune to any spiritual repercussions. They did not think there was any danger at all. Like thirsty hikers who drink from a mountain stream, unaware of the debilitating giardia that might lurk in the crystal clear waters. Paul sounds the alarm against pagan banquets that may seem to the Corinthians to be only innocuous conviviality combined with meaningless ritual. He's not addressing the security of the believer, but calling attention to the pitfall of being careless because of overconfidence. John MacArthur says Christians who have become self-confident become less dependent on God's word and God's spirit. They become careless in their living. And as carelessness increases, openness to, to temptation increases, and resistance to sin decreases. When we feel most secure in ourselves, when we think our spiritual life is the strongest, our doctrine the soundest, our morals the purest, we should be most on our guard and most dependent upon the Lord. And we must be as a church. 
We need to have strong doctrine. We need to be pursuing purity. We need to be aware of these things, but we must be careful lest we fall thinking that we have stood. It is true that pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16, 18, that a haughty spirit goes before stumbling. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 2, if anyone supposes he knows anything, he's not known as he ought to know, which is, I know everything I need to know. I mean, I'll hear people tell me that. I mean, you know, yeah, I like Bible teaching, I like to get that, but I mean, I know what I need to. I don't need to read the Word every day. Because, I mean, I know these things. What a, what a travesty. How dangerous could that possibly be? You think you are standing, and yet you could fall if you're not carefully pursuing the things which lead to endurance, as we will see. Do not, precious congregation, do not be arrogant. Do not think you stand and then put away the things you know. The, the prayer you know is necessary. The word of God you know is necessary. The church of God you know is necessary. Don't make excuses and in doing so fall when you have had every opportunity to stand. Is there any area in your life in which you are convinced you are spiritually strong, yet perhaps others have warned you of the danger? Or maybe evidence suggests that all is not as it seems. Take time to carefully consider whether you think you are standing and whether you are in danger of a fall. You see, in a, in a congregation like ours, it's probably not so much that you haven't heard about the various sins that you might commit, right? That you haven't heard the Bible verses about the kinds of ways you ought to treat people and that you ought to be forgiving and loving and kind and that you can't allow bitterness to take root in your heart and that you can't be angry towards others, that you can't be arrogant towards the outside world. You've heard all those things. And I would say that for most of you, I hope all of you, you carefully process those each week and you sift in your mind and heart, am I becoming arrogant? Am I just measuring myself against the world saying, man, I'm doing a lot better than that, so things are fine, or even against other people in the church? Because it's not that you don't know about what sin is, it's that you, if you are still having a pattern of sin in your life, that you're not dealing with, it's that you've made an excuse for it. That's what I'm challenging you with this morning. It is probably not that I've mentioned some sin, that those sins of Israel are like, oh, I didn't know that was a sin. If you did, well, now you know. And you need to stop trying or testing or grumbling or being immoral. But most of you know, and you are making excuses. I have the right to hold this in my heart, and essentially what you're saying is, for me, it isn't sin. Why? Because I'm a victim. I've been harmed. And therefore, for me to respond back in this way isn't really sin. It's just what, it's my right. I deserve this. This will kill you if you make excuses in your heart for why you are allowed to pursue a certain course of action and for you it isn't sin. I can have that bitterness against my wife or husband because they've been so difficult. My my children are walking away from God and and so so I I can be angry uh, with them. Because of, of how they've harmed me. Oh, I know I shouldn't, you know, I know I can't, can't flare that anger out at them, but this deep-seated discontent that I have, that's okay because this situation is so hard. Verse 13 is going to remove all of that from you. There's not one of us who can look at a temptation we are facing and say, I have the right to sin because this is so hard. I have the right to sin because I'm a victim of things that have happened to me. And so that's where I want you to be careful, and that's where we're moving now. Because you might be sitting here going, no, I'm, I'm, I don't think I stand. I mean, I, I, I know that I could fall, and so I'm being very careful in every area but this one. And Chris, God can't have that one because I deserve to keep it. And whether, again, whether it's bitterness, anger, anxiety perhaps, 
Maybe you have an illness that has struck you most recently or one you've had all of your life and you know you're going to have it all your life. You've played, prayed to God for, for healing. You've gone through everything that you have to go through and you still have it. And you say, well, therefore I can be frustrated and discouraged because I have this and it's never going away. And I'll, I'll make it through. I know, I'm a Christian. I know God brings these things, but I'm not rejoicing. And I have the right because this is so hard. I want to be careful here because we don't want to minimize. I do not must not, will not minimize the difficulties of this world that we face, of diseases that strike people and bring them unto death, of children that walk away from God, of, of, of daughters who are harmed and raped, of, of, of things of intensely difficult, of, of abusive marriages that people have been through. As all of those things are real and true. And yet, in the midst of that, God gives us the strength. He gives us endurance that we would not fall that we would be able to please him and honor him. Those things do not give us an excuse to sin ever, not one single time. So let's dive into that part of it. Endure temptation is Paul's next challenge. Evaluate yourselves, and I hope you're doing that even now because this is Communion Sunday. It's time, it's time to evaluate, and again, I don't, I'm not over-applying this. Most of you have been doing this all week. Daily, you think about your sin and you're dealing with it. At least I hope that's you. So you come to communion and you, you're pretty much, you've been doing that. This is just a, a corporate time, a unique and special time corporately where we are aware of our communion with Christ, where by faith we take hold of that and others. So you're, you're prepared, you're ready, but I want you to be careful. I want you to think it through carefully, evaluating. And now to understand that you have no excuses, because although this is a very comforting verse, verse 13 And it is a general verse to deal with any kind of trial or trouble that you might face. It comes in context of, one, you have no excuse for any idolatry because any temptation towards it, you can overcome. You have no excuse to say you stand and yet fall because you have been given the strengths and resources not to fail. And therefore, you you must eliminate any excuse you would make towards why you are still an idolater in any particular area. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Temptation is common. And again, this is an encouragement in one sense, but it is a shot across the bow to say, you think you're unique. You think you're special. Corinthians, you think whatever circumstance you might be facing, that makes you unique, maybe uniquely spiritual, or there's some sin that you don't have to overcome, because this is out of bounds. It is, it is so strange or so difficult or so hard that other people don't have to go through it. And Paul says, that isn't true. Every temptation you will ever face is common to man. It is something that people face. And therefore, you can and must deal with it. There's not a person sitting here this morning or a person sitting anywhere in the world this morning who can say, hey, my situation is unique. The Bible doesn't speak to it. God doesn't speak to it. And I can sin. Not one. Because of the power of what God has done, because of who he is. So no temptation has overtaken you. And here, it's important to understand the word temptation. Because I think in this verse, Paul's really using it with a dual emphasis. That is both meanings of the word. Because the word is used in James chapter 1 of trials that God brings. Circumstantial things he brings into our life. Which is everything God brings, right? He brings it. He's uniquely in charge of all things. He's sovereign over every event. And everything that happens in your life is a test, as it were, of faith. Will you obey God within it? From mildly difficult to really difficult. Even good things in your life are a test to what? To praise and honor God. Right? In that way... Right? All of the circumstances God brings into our lives are to 
to refine our faith, to give us an opportunity to be righteous. That's the kind of test that God brings. He says, look, here's a circumstance. I'm going to strengthen you to be righteous. I'm going to demonstrate the reality of your faith through you as you exercise it, and you're going to rejoice in me in the midst of the trial. That's why he says in James 1, verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's the word we translate either trial or temptation. And so this idea that God has brought it, so you thank him in it, knowing, well, why would you thank God in the midst of an incredibly difficult circumstance? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That is, the more he tests, the stronger you are. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You will be taking on the character of Christ. That's why we can rejoice in a trial. He's preparing you. He's like that SEAL team that you know, he's preparing or that parachuting team. He's preparing you, demonstrating the reality of your faith so that you have strength to walk through the next one. And that's what you need. That's why he brings the trials. So when it says in verse 13, no temptation, no trial has overtaken you. That first sense is certainly true. No circumstance happens in your life, but such as is common to man. These things happen to everyone. If you're living on this earth, you have difficulty to every degree. Now, today in our world, we're taught the more difficulty you have, the more right you have to sin. The, most, the ones who have been most harmed among us have the most right to respond to that wrongly, to, to respond with brokenness and, and with, uh, with their whole lives ruined because of how hard it's been. And if, you have, if it's not as been as hard for you, you have no right to say that they shouldn't be overcome by that because what they experienced was harder than you. you guys, God's word gives us the necessary, necessary instructions to say to everyone, even if you have not experienced the same depth of trouble they have, to say it isn't about what I've experienced, it's about what God will do and has done for you in the midst of that. And so we proclaim this truth to everyone, even those who have had a harder time than we have. That's really important. I don't just, I I would have to stop counseling people. I'm sorry, you've had a much more difficult circumstance than I have, so I can't understand what you're going through. This is what the world is saying. And it's a travesty. I sit and I go, look, I don't know what you're going through. Now again, it's a beneficial to me if I've processed suffering and difficulty in my life in a biblical way. That's certainly necessary, But then I say, here's what the Bible says. And that nothing you're going through is something that is outside of God having brought it to you because he brings everything to every man. There's no one who can say, this circumstance is outside what God brought. It's not common to man. It's not only happens to men. No, everything that happens to a man is what happens to men because it's what God brought. And so that's the first way the trial, temptation is being used. So no temptation is overtaking you, no, no trial, no circumstance. But such as is common to man, and God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted. It's the same word. Right? And here I think it, has, it carries kind of the second connotation, which is in a trial that God brings, that is a circumstance that he brings to show your righteousness, to demonstrate your faith, in that the enemy of your soul, and then as it were your sinful flesh, conspire against you to draw you away to sin. That's that kind of temptation. That in every circumstance, because when circumstances are good, your sinful flesh would draw you away to exalt in yourself and to sin. When things are bad and difficult, your sinful flesh rises up within you to say, God is evil. You should be able to do these things. And who is the, who is the one who loves to manipulate things so that your sinful flesh is activated? Satan. God brought the circumstance. It is Satan that roils up the heart as it were, or that he manipulates through 
bad teaching through the things that happen in life. So he activates, as it were, your sinful flesh. But at the end of the day, it is your sinful flesh that leads you away to sin. James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted. Again, same word. Trials in chapter 2 of James 1. But let no one say when he's tempted, that is when Satan then seeks to use those trials to draw out sin in the heart, and he, he is appealing to your sinful flesh that's there. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Because you could t- tie those two things together, right? God brings every circumstance. Therefore, if I'm tempted to evil within it, God has tempted me to evil. And you would be dead wrong. Because God never tempts to evil. But he brings every circumstance. Let no one say, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when? You're well taught, you know this, when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. It doesn't even even refer to Satan there, but again, we know that the enemy of our souls is using all of this to draw that sin out. He himself does not hop into your heart and make you sin. All he has to do is manipulate, as it were, using the very circumstances that God brings Through the worldly philosophies and worldly culture, he manipulates your thinking and your sinful flesh so that you turn away from God. And you made that decision. It's on you. Not Satan and not God in that sense. But it is Satan and our sinful flesh that lead away towards sinful behavior. It is God who is leading us towards righteousness. This is exactly what's happening when Jesus was tempted. And what? God is the one who led Jesus through the Spirit into the wilderness and the tempter was there. God arranged that. He directed that circumstance. And Satan was there doing what? Trying to get Jesus to sin. And God was allowing Satan to be there directing that whole circumstance to to show what in Jesus? His righteousness. And guess what? That's exactly what was shown because Jesus was perfect. And he did not give in to the temptation to sin. Instead, he exercised faith and he threw the word of God and was obedient. John MacArthur, God's tests are never a solicitation to evil. And James corrects those who suggest such a thing. Let no one say, when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. By evil is the key to the difference between the two types of temptations. In the wilderness, God tested Jesus by righteousness. That is, testing him to show his righteousness. Whereas Satan tempted him by evil. A temptation becomes an inducement to evil only when a person is carried away and enticed by their own lusts. What does 1 Peter 1 say? Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, knowing that those things that God brings, you could, the same word we're using here, you've been distressed by various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, what does it do? It enables your faith to be shown, distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's what's going on. Everything God brings is an opportunity to draw out righteousness through your exercise of faithful obedience, which he strengthens you to, even as Satan is trying to draw it out as a sin. And you have the ability to overcome that. Well, why? Because you're like, well, wait a minute. Those things are really strong. Maybe God is evil. Maybe when he brings those things, he overcomes me. It's just too much. And the circumstance he's brought is, is, is too great for me. The next phrase drops that thought in the dust. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful. God is faithful. It is impossible for God to have 
or be bringing you a circumstance that is too great for you. It is impossible for God to be tempting you to sin. It is impossible for God to be using that circumstance to trick you or to overcome you. He is faithful. Everything that he has brought into your life and will bring into your life until the day you die comes from the hand of a faithful God who has covenanted with his people to love them, care for them, protect them, guard them, and bring them to himself. He cannot lie. He cannot be unfaithful. So you're going to have to banish that from your mind. By faith, you believe that God is faithful. And you look into his word to see the reality. That's why we have communion. As it were, we touch and, and taste for a moment that reality of what Christ did on the cross. Not re-bringing it, not re-experiencing it, but remembering it. And we do it together. This is the proof of his faithfulness. He didn't even need to do that. He cannot be unfaithful if he sent his own son to die for you. He cannot be bringing you something that is too great for you to bear. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. He will not allow excessive temptation. I've read about 10 blogs in the past two years that have said this weird phrase, which is, you know, the, you know, some people say the Bible says that God won't tempt you beyond what you can bear. Of course he will, because he will tempt you beyond what you can bear, and then he will help you bear it. That's it's just simply unscriptural. And it's, it's, it's got bad theology behind it, which is the problem. The idea that God will somehow solve the problem for you. No, he never brings you anything more than you can bear. That is you as a Christian, empowered by God, given the spirit of God and the word of God and the people of God. Nothing will come into your life that you individually, personally, in corporate nature, of course, that you can't bear. So it's just avoiding responsibility. Well, it's too much for me to bear. So God, I'm waiting for you to magically make me stronger. That's, that's, that's what that blog theology is all about. And it's dead wrong. God empowers you to walk through the circumstance, your mind, your will, your affections, your conscience being activated through the midst of a difficulty so that you are able to endure. It's his strength. He's the one that actually brings change, but he does it through you. It's no magic. I nothing. You just sit there and wait for God to overcome you with some kind of, you know, a, a, and drop out the escape hatch. That's how we read this verse. No, he won't allow excessive temptation. Why? God is faithful. Who won't allow you to be tempted beyond as you are able? Well, how do we know that? With the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape also. And you're like, oh, see, Chris, there it is. I'm sitting around and it's way too much for me and I'm just going to sit here and God will just drop me out of the situation. Right? I'll be walking along and beep, beep, beep. The sign will show up. Look, run out here and you will get away from the temptation. Keep reading. Right? The way of escape, what's the way of escape? So that you will be able to endure it, to bear up under it, to keep going through it. No magic escape hatch. The path of escape, hear me carefully. The path of escape, the way of taking the path of escape in every trial is exactly the same. Faithful, prayerful obedience to Scripture. That is the way of escaping. Now, within any individual situation, you will have to exercise obedience unique to that situation. 
in a marriage, exercising obedience in loving your wife or submitting to your husband or mutually caring for one another. With your children, a difficult child, learning how to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the individual actions within any trial will be dictated by the same means, faithful, spirit-empowered obedience according to the principles of Scripture as you pray. That's your way of enduring. And as you do that, the path through the trial becomes evident moment by moment. Not looking for some secret escape hatch, but simply you will know how to respond. You will know what words to say. You will know what, you know, how, what circumstance to pursue next as you put into practice these principles. But if you refuse to exercise faith, if you refuse to pray, if you refuse to take hold of the resources God has given, you will fail. And you'll be like, God, it's your fault. This was too much for me to bear. He's saying, no, I gave you all the resources. I indwelt you with my spirit. I gave you the fullness of my word. I gave you my church. I gave you people to preach and teach. I gave you elders to lead you and guide you. I gave you friends to disciple you. To the extent that you took hold of those, you would have been able to endure. Every single trial, please hear me. Because it may yet be that there's some of you sitting here this morning still saying, not me. It wasn't enough. People didn't help me enough. They didn't do enough. God provided you, is providing you. Even when other people fail you, he is providing you with a necessary means to escape. That is, to endure through it. And by the way, coming out on the end or finishing out trials is never guaranteed in this life. There's not a single thing you're facing that there's any guarantee that it will end. None. Now, many of them do, right? You have difficulties that end, thankfully. But God never one time in Scripture guarantees that any particular trial you face will end before you die or before he comes again. And when one trial ends, what happens? The next one starts. And in fact, while one trial was going on, what happens? The next 10 jump on your head. That's just how it works. And I've got to stop. It's not fair. Because it is fair. Because I'm strengthening you and empowering you and I'm giving you opportunities to be righteous. Because I'm not taking this lightly. Some of you have husbands who have harmed you or wives who have been bitter and bitter and angry and left you. I'm, we're, we're not playing games. We're not talking you're, you're, you blew a tire on the way to church. That's a trial. But it's not like a difficult marriage all of your life. But the prescription is the same. You have the strength to walk through and endure that until such time as God chooses to end it or he takes you home. He will provide the way of escape. We're not passive in that. The escape is faithful obedience. 1 Peter 5, 7, we are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then what I quoted you already, even though now for a little while, if necessary, we've been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith might be shown. You're protected by the power of God through faith. Believing the truth of what God has said and putting it into faithful practice, obedience, which requires prayer, so that we might have the strength necessary to put it into practice. Remember what happened to Simon? Peter's speaking with him, Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. He says, Simon, Simon, say, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And you can imagine Peter's like, what? And Jesus says, but I told Satan no. That's not what he said. He says, I have prayed for you. You can just imagine Peter going, what? You, you're going to pray for me? Tell Satan he can't do that. Don't let him sift me like wheat. I don't want to be sifted by the enemy of my soul. Don't let that happen. And Jesus said, I am letting it happen. But I'm praying for you. 
Is that sufficient for Jesus to pray for us? It is. Our faith will not fail. He says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, indicating what? A failure of courage, a failure of exercising faith in that moment when he denies Christ, but not an ex- a failure of exercise of faith for the long haul. So you pray, and when you pray, what happens? Jesus is praying, and the Spirit is praying, and the power of God is enacted on your behalf, and you walk through a trial without it being too excessive for you. In fact, your faith grows stronger, and you gain greater endurance for the next trial because he will enable you to endure, to keep going through disobedient children, handicapped children, bad government, comprehensive illness. He will enable you to endure. He will strengthen you as you take hold of his resources. He is faithful. James 5.11 says, we count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance. You think, well, who's that? I mean, that's little things. No, you've heard of the endurance of Job. I mean, if anybody wasn't going to endure, if their faith wasn't going to last, we discussed this in SI on Thursday night. If someone's faith was going to fail, it was going to be Job's. And guess what? It didn't. But he had to walk all the way through the trial. And God never told him why he did that. And yet, God did strengthen his faith. I mean, when we think about enduring through trial, think of Paul in 2 Timothy 4.18. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. You're like, oh, great. So that's what he means. He'll rescue me. He, I won't, I, evil deeds won't harm me. Well, do you know where Paul is in 2 Timothy chapter 4? He's in prison, so cold that he's calling to Timothy, please come before winter so I don't die of exposure in this prison. Bring my cloak. And, and I just had my first defense and everybody left me and yet I was able to preach the gospel so God has strengthened me. And then he says after that, he'll rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Uh-oh. The rescue from the evil deeds is not that they didn't happen to him. The rescue from the evil deeds is that his faith did not fail in them and they did not keep him from entering into the presence of his Savior when he was beheaded a couple of months later. That's what it means that you will be enabled to endure. That's what it means that you will have a way of escape. You will always without fail, stand before your Savior, fully clothed in his righteousness, with an intimate relationship with him for all of eternity. Nothing can take that from you. And on the way there, nothing will steal your faith and nothing will overcome or overmaster you in such a way that you cannot serve and honor and please God. He will enable you to endure. Therefore, what's the capstone? Verse 14, because you have no excuses, Because God empowers you to walk through any temptation without failing, therefore, flee idolatry. What's too much for me? I have to do this. I I have to sit in this way. I have to be anxious. I have to be angry. I have to go sit in these temple sacrifices because if I don't, then I'm going to be ostracized by my family. I'm not going to have the economic opportunities that I need. I won't be able to provide for my family. I have to do this. Paul says, no, you don't. No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. God will make provision. Therefore, flee every form of idolatry. You have the power. You have the strength. No excuses this morning. For all of us. And, and if certainly, if at Corinth, he can tell them that in the midst of all that's going on, certainly we too have the same exhortation. And the beauty of what we are now celebrating, which is really, the, the Apostle Paul is now going to talk about communion. We're not going to get there this morning. We're going to take communion. 
But he's going to tell them the beauty of having communion with Christ is not to be adulterated by the pursuit of idolatry, and it does not need to be because he strengthens you so that you don't and so that you won't. So as the team comes and as the men come, why flee idolatry? Because the dire consequences of facing God's discipline are strong, and we don't want to face those, so we flee idolatry. Flee idolatry because you are not required to give into it because God has made provision for you. So run. Do not allow that sin that is seeking to overtake you through your evil cravings to be exercised. We flee idolatry because there's only one true God. Right? So there aren't any other deities that could force us to our knees or cause us to walk away from God. We flee idolatry so that we won't stumble our brothers. We flee idolatry because idols cannot satisfy We flee idolatry because God does satisfy perfectly. We flee idolatry because we love others and don't want them to be tempted or stumbled. We flee idolatry because we love God and long to bring him the glory he so richly deserves. We flee idolatry because we are are celebrating his very sacrifice on our behalf this morning. How could we be idolaters? And how could we? turn away from the, from the sacrifice, from the provision that he has made. So that's the, that's the challenge this morning. It's the negative, as I said before. If there is, are areas in your life where you are willfully sinning and rebelling, they must not walk through communion. They shouldn't have walked into this morning, but they not, must not walk through here. Be careful. What excuses are you making as to why you're not going to deal with your sin when or as you take this visible reminder by faith? That's the negative side. I would again say for most of you, I'm not talking about dredging up some secret thing you had no idea of and you're like, man, Chris is telling me somehow he knows me and somehow deep underneath here. If there's nothing bothering your conscience after examination, rejoice. You're not dredging things up. God's tricking me. But don't walk through things you know you're not dealing with. But on the flip side, there's delight. And that he strengthened you, that he's faithful, that he, you will endure, that he will draw you through, that this sacrifice made on your behalf is what guarantees your endurance. Your Savior endured, he did not fail, so neither will you. So delight in this this morning. Move from tears to absolute delight if that's necessary this morning, but don't fail to reach the delight as we remember what he's done. So let's stand and sing and prepare our hearts.